0: Years ago, I, I read a story that I often think of at Easter time. I don't know if it's true, but it, it sounded very believable. One morning, a husband and wife experienced a nightmare when their dog came home with the neighbor's dead rabbit in its mouth, muddy and dead. and not being the most moral people, they just didn't want to own the idea that their rabbit or that their dog killed their neighbor's rabbit. So they concocted a devious plan. Let's wash the rabbit, clean it up, and tonight we'll put it in the cage again and they'll just think it died in its sleep. next day when he saw the neighbor going out to the cage, he decided he would kind of trump up his his surprise. And so he walked down and he said, hey, um, how's it gone? And the neighbor was staring in the cage at disbelief. And he thought it was because the neighbor saw the rabbit was dead. He said, oh, what's wrong? He said, oh, your rabbit's dead. I'm so sorry. He said, no, 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 that's not what's wrong. He said, Yesterday, my or the day before my rabbit died, and we buried it. <laughs> and now he's back in the cage. <laughs> For some people, that's about the extent of, of their view of the resurrection. And I would suggest that maybe you might, like me, have grown up At least with some religious exposure. I I went to a Methodist church growing up. They didn't teach the Bible, but we would stand each Sunday and recite the Apostles' Creed. We would say, I believe in Jesus Christ, crucified, dead, and buried. The third day He arose from the dead. He ascended to heaven, and He sits at the right hand of God. He's coming to judge the living and the dead. And And you can say that you believe that because I literally was mouthing those words. I believe these things happen. But the day I was told that my father had a heart attack and I was taken to the hospital where my family was there huddled together weeping because the doctor said the chances of him living are one in a hundred, I realized that I didn't really believe nor did I understand what death was or what happens after you die. And I know there are a lot of people who say, I'm not afraid to die. But the reality is that's one of the greatest mysteries and one of the most painful sorrows in life is that people die. And God never intended it that way. But I remember I shared on Friday saying to God, Lord, if you would heal my dad, I'll follow you. And God didn't didn't make a deal with me, but he did heal my dad. And that was one of the things that drew me to start reading the Bible. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage that's really cool because the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, is all about the resurrection. And we've actually been reading through the book of 1 Corinthians. So you can join us next week to continue our reading. But One of the things that we're teaching people when you're reading the Bible is to try to read it in its context. You can't just open to the middle of a newspaper article and go, what's this about? So this was written to a group of people who had heard the message of salvation. The apostle Paul had come to their city and he had told them this. Jesus Christ is the son of God who's the Messiah. He was crucified And on that cross, God punished him for all of our sins so that we could be forgiven. Christ died for our sins. And then on Sunday morning, God raised him from the dead on the third day. And then he had invited them to repent and believe that, to become Christ followers. And many of the Corinthians responded affirmatively. They said, yes, I believe that. I believe I'm forgiven. I want to be a Christ follower. And they were baptized, and and they were regularly gathering with other Christians. But over the years, the Apostle Paul found out that many of them, or at least some of them, began to change their beliefs and basically came right out and said this, I don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And Paul's like, wait, what? How can you change your beliefs? Some things never change. I assure you, every day, hundreds and thousands of people who grew up in a Christian church change their beliefs. I don't believe that anymore. And you can mark this down. Anytime somebody changes their beliefs, they're going to change their behavior. And so it's no small thing for someone to say, I don't believe that anymore. And so Paul writes this chapter in shock and disbelief to say, don't you remember the gospel I, I preached to you? This is the gospel by which you were saved. Christ died and rose again. How can you say Christ didn't rise again? And the reason they believe that is because they were taught that the body is evil. And so why would God raise us in the body? So later we're gonna study the whole chapter in detail But for now, Paul writes this chapter and he starts by reaffirming the fact of the resurrection. He goes, Christ rose. A bunch of people saw him. It's a fact. Secondly, he says, let me remind you how important the resurrection is. It's got great implications. If he didn't rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. We're worthless and hopeless. There's no point. Just eat, drink, and bury. Tomorrow we die. The third thing he does, though, is he answers a really interesting question. What type of body will we have when we're resurrected? How how can this happen? And then finally, he says, now let me remind you of a really practical application. So this morning, we're going to spend our time beginning in verse 35 and primarily in the passage that Austin just read, but we're going to answer two questions. We're not, not going to cover the whole thing, the fact of the resurrection. We're not going to talk about the implication of the resurrection. We're going to answer two questions. Look at verse 35. Paul says, someone will say, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? Okay, so at least we all know where we're going here. How are the dead raised, and with what kind of body will they come? Two simple questions with two simple answers. The first question, how are they raised? The answer is powerfully. There's no other explanation for a resurrection other than powerfully. In fact, this passage is going to tell us in verse 43, our bodies are sown in weakness but raised in power. But then he's going to answer the question, what kind of body will we have? And the answer to that is gloriously different. How are they raised? Powerfully. What will they look like? Gloriously different. Now, you might go, okay, well, what's that have to do with me? You'll see. So let's start at verse 35. We're just going to read along. Paul says, all right, here's your questions. How are the dead rise, raised, and with what kind of body do they come? So notice how he starts. He says, you know, it's kind of a dumb thing to question that God can't raise the dead. You know why? He goes, have you ever done any gardening? And he was like, yeah, yeah, I, I've, I've done gardening. And you know when you take a, 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 a grain... A seed, in fact, some of you, the ladies' uh, ministry coming up, they're going to plant some herbs. He says, when you put a seed in the ground, it dies. You all knew that, right? It dies. He goes, but in order for it to to rise, it has to die first. So he goes, every day when you drive by a cornfield, make note that there was a resurrection. A seed was put in the ground, it died, and then it came to life. So it ought not to be that ridiculous if all around in nature I can see things die and come back out of the ground, that the resurrection would be all that ridiculous. So notice how he argues this. He goes, you fool, verse 36, that which you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you don't sow the body which is to be but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. Okay? He says, but, but when it comes out of the ground, God gives it a body just as he wished. And to each of the seeds, a body of its own. And you know what's cool about getting a variety of seeds is, unless you're a, a real flower expert, it's, it's a real crapshoot. I don't know what's coming out. I threw a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and wow, look at that red one, look at that one. Same thing with a garden. You could just get a handful of different types of seeds, throw them in there and go, I don't know what's coming out. Hey, look, there's a stalk of corn. Oh, look, that's a watermelon. So he goes, just think about it. It's not all that that profound to think that dead things come to life, but they come different when they come back. So well, what do you mean different, Paul? Well, What's your point? He says, you want to know what kind of body you're going to have when you rise from the dead? Well, let's keep that plain analogy in mind. He says, all flesh is not the same flesh. There is human flesh, and then there's flesh of beasts, and flesh of birds, and flesh of fish. Okay? So, for example, every once in a while, we get kind of, kind of, You know, scientifically inquisitive, and we go, I wonder if I could take some flesh from an animal and put it into a human. In fact, any of you remember Baby Faye in La Melinda Hospital? Used to be a joke about that. What rides this bike 100 miles an hour past La Melinda Hospital? A baboon. Because you remember, they took a baboon's heart and they put it into a baby's body. Didn't work. Maybe because Paul said all flesh is not the same flesh. Now I just saw somebody with stitches. He's got some cat guts in his head. Some things work, but he goes, just think about it. There's different types of flesh. And then he says, let's do some astronomy. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly one and the glory of the earthly one is another. There's a glory of the sun and a glory of the moon and a glory of the stars. For stars differ from star in glory. Some of them are brighter than the other. Now, I'm wondering there if he's not actually implying that our bodies will differ in glory. That that some people will shine brighter than others. Because the Bible does speak of those who are great and greater in the kingdom of God. Those who turn many to righteousness, the Bible says, will shine like the sun. And then he says, so also is the resurrection from the dead. It's sown a perishable body, and it's raised an imperishable body. It's sown in dishonor, and it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, and it's raised in power. Now, he uses some Maybe you would consider insulting terms. He just called our bodies weak, dishonorable, corruptible, and perishable. What does that mean? Well, what that means is when God created Adam and Eve with flesh and bones and all these little vessels and veins and tissues and sinew, that he had not confirmed it into a permanent disposition... It was sort of a a transitional, probational time. If Adam had stretched forth his hand and taken of the tree of life and ate that, these flesh and bones would have been permanent. But instead, Adam and Eve chose to sin. You're familiar with the term original sin. And when they sinned, the Bible says that when they ate from that fruit, man became corrupted and corruptible. We became weak, frail, perishable, susceptible to pain and sorrow and suffering and permanent, we're not gonna live forever. So, having said that, Paul goes, think about your earthly body. It is sown in dishonor. Now, the thing that intrigued me here is, Pastor John just called me the other day. He said, God asked an interesting thing. He said, sometimes you get asked to do a funeral he said, I wasn't asked to do a funeral. He said, I was asked to do a burial. You say, well, what's the difference? Well, a funeral, you usually have at a church or funeral home. And then at the burial, we usually call that the graveside committal. But as I was reading here, I thought, sown. Sown. What an interesting analogy. Some of you have lost a loved one. You remember, I remember that sorrowful moment when they began to lower the casket into the ground, right? But I never thought of it before. It's like, I'm just planting my garden. I'm just putting a seed in the ground. This isn't the end. The harvest is coming. And so, in that same way, Paul says, here's what our body is going to be like. It's sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. Now, I want to make sure you understand this. A spiritual body does not mean that we're going to be ghosts. Then it would just be called a spirit. But it's a spiritual body. So we're answering the question, what kind of body am I going to have when I rise from the dead? Jesus rose from the dead with a spiritual body. When they first saw him, they thought he was just a spirit. He's a ghost. And he goes wait a minute, I'm not a ghost, I'm not a spirit, touch me. And they grabbed his arm, he goes, I got flesh and bones. And they said, you guys have anything to eat? They reached in their McDonald's bag, pulled out their filet of fish and Jesus began to eat it in front of them, and it didn't look like an x-ray machine where his esophagus was showing. He wasn't a spirit, he was raised from the dead with a physical body, but it's called a spiritual body, not because it doesn't have flesh and bones, but because the properties are gloriously different. For example, the Bible says the disciples were in the upper room and the doors were locked and Jesus appeared in their midst. Now some of you have been at the gym enough that you're feeling pretty good about your body. But if you want to find out if it's already spiritual, try walking through that wall on your way out. Let me know how that goes. So there's a mystery to this spiritual glorious body. It's indestructible. It's imperishable. It is incapable of feeling sorrow or pain. I'm all in on that. So with that in mind, Paul says, so what we're going to see here is there's going to be this glorious transformation, this overlay between the earthly and the heavenly. Jesus is the prototype. So he says Christ is the first fruits and we will be like him. So let's look. He says, the first man, verse 47, Adam is from the earth. He's earthy. Now, <laughs> this is kind of funny. You know what earth people are? You know, they kind of have their, their dreadlocks. They don't wash their hair for about six months, you know. and, and, and so, so I don't know if, if that's a compliment to be called earthy. You know, it depends. You know, sometimes earth, earthy people don't. Well, maybe some of you are earthy here, so I don't want to, you know, to each his own. But but he simply means we're made out of earth, literally earth. Now, this is kind of a cool fact. Scientists and biologists have basically said that when a body is put back in the ground, that when it decomposes, it turns back to earth. It's basically just dirt. And yet in God's glorious power, the Bible says he upholds all things by the word of his power. He takes all these atoms of dirt and he holds them together while there's life in us. But when we die... And, and, and our spirit leaves us, our bodies begin to decompose because they were earthy. But he says the second man is from heaven, Jesus. He's heavenly. And so look at verse 49. He says, just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. You know, that answered a question for me because I was always puzzled by this question. The Bible says that when we see Jesus, we will be like him. The Bible says we will be transformed in our body into conformity with the body of Jesus. So in my mind, I envisioned an unteeming or a teeming multitude that I couldn't count of clones of Jesus. And we would all spend eternity going around and I would go, hi, Jim. Is this Jim Patoka? No, it's Kathy. Hey, we all look alike. So I always had this this idea in my mind that how is it that we're all going to look like Jesus? Because to me, if we're all just going to be little minions of Jesus, there's not a whole lot of comfort about seeing my loved ones. But yet the Bible says the dead in Christ will rise first and we're going to be reunited and we'll be with our loved ones forever. So take courage. I know the Bible says that in heaven you're not allowed to marry or given marriage, but I'm at least going to take Tammy for some angel food cake, maybe slip her a kiss, because I'll recognize her, and here's how. By the way, Tammy's my wife, okay, let's, <laughs> let's get that clear. <laughs> Verse 49, so look at this, just as we have borne the image of the earthy, he doesn't say you're going to lose that, so there's going to be certain things about you that, that will still be recognizable. But he says, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. So he says, so, I've answered your two questions. How will the dead raise? By God's power, powerfully. What will they look like? They will look gloriously different. But that leads him then to one final thought where we'll close. We'll we'll kind of wind it down. The final question is, why? Why do I need a gloriously different body. Now, some of you are going to go, you serious? (laughs) Look at me. (laughs) We hold these truths to be self-evident. I need something that's going to last. This thing's falling apart, right? But what is it that makes this necessity of a new gloriously different body? Well, Paul's going to tell us in verse 50. This is a really exciting... I love this passage. He says, Now I say this, brothers... That flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So so the first thing he says is this. You ain't going to heaven in this body. You're not going to be with Jesus forever in this body. Mark that down. Impossible. Now he doesn't say why yet. He just says mark it down. Like this, you're not going in. Now, there's a couple reasons for that. One has to do with the nature of God. The other has to do with the nature of the new creation. I'll start with the new creation. The Bible says right now this world in which we live is in slavery to corruption. And you ready for this? It's decaying just like our sad and sorry old bodies. And by the way, I'm quite offended by some of you because on Friday when I was busting my moves and falling around, ready to do the worm. I can't tell you how many of you are like, I didn't think you were able to get up, brother. <laughs> I'm like, what do I look like, I'm 80? Come on, show me some love here. So, so here's the thing, apparently I look a lot weaker and frailer than I thought I was. <laughs> and maybe I am, but the point is this, no matter how strong we think we are, we're not gonna go into heaven with this body. You need to be changed. And interestingly, there are, there are some implications to that because not everybody wants to change. So, the Bible says creation is subject to futility right now. It's decaying, right? Shocking. There are holes in the ozone layer. Shocking. Maybe there is some truth to global warming. Shocking. Shocking. Maybe the sun is starting to to lose some of its power. Why should that surprise us? You ready for this verse in Psalm 102? Of old, Lord, you founded the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish. The creation will perish. It will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them and they will be changed. So you ready for this? The second reason that we're going to, or the first reason that we need to be changed is because Where we're going is going to be incorruptible and imperishable. It would be a fundamental incompatibility to be in a place that never decays if I'm in a decaying body. They don't fit. In fact, the Bible says this about the kingdom of God, and and, and I want you to chase from your mind forever, that that if you're a Christian, we're going to float in the clouds forever and play harps. That's nonsense, We're not going to float in the clouds forever and play harps. We're going to be resurrected in a body and God's going to nuke this earth and he's going to create a brand new heaven and earth. And the Bible says that heaven and earth is an inheritance that's imperishable and incorruptible. In fact, this world is full of wickedness, but the Bible says we are looking for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So how on earth could I in this corruptible and perishable body inherit incorruptible and imperishable kingdom of God. So, Because it wouldn't make sense. Okay, fine, Paul. But then he says, no, let 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 me let you in on a secret. Look at verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. You say, a mystery? What's a mystery? Whenever you read the word mystery in the New Testament, it's something that was hidden in the Old Testament. It's not Agatha Christie. It's something that was hidden in the Old Testament. Now, here's the idea. The Old Testament always predicted that God was going to raise the dead. The Old Testament always predicted that God's coming again to judge the the dead. But what it never talked about was this. What's going to happen if I'm still alive when God comes back? So Paul says, I'm going to tell you a mystery. This is something you wouldn't have known about, but God revealed it to me. If you're still alive when Jesus comes back, You and I need to be changed. He says, look, here's the mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Have you ever heard of verses taken out of context? You ever heard that expression? Here's an example. I saw that verse in a nursery, in a church. We shall not all sleep, we shall all be changed? No! What it's saying is we're not all going to be dead, but mark this down. When Jesus comes back, we will be, bam, changed. And, and, and why am I being emphatic? Because Paul's being emphatic. He says, let me tell you a little bit about this. He says, first of all, it's going to be in a moment. That Greek word is Adam. At that time, the word Adam meant indivisible. They thought that was the smallest unit. Nowadays, we know that there are more divisible units of time than an atom of time. In fact, it's the amount of time it takes from the light to turn green and the guy behind you to honk, right? There are shorter... So don't don't picture when Jesus comes back, you're gonna be like, ooh, ooh, what's happening? It's gonna be like this, it's over. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and then he says, at the last trumpet. And trumpets in the Bible indicated significant things, and so the Bible says... That on that last day, a great trumpet will sound. The Lord will descend from heaven with a shout. And with the trumpet of God. Remember the old hymn, when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. And that trumpet could sound today. And when that trumpet sounds, the Bible says, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. We will be changed. So in between that time, I could use a change. I get sad. I get mad. I feel had. I hurt. I suffer. I struggle. And the Bible describes it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. As long as we are in this life, in this body, we groan. All right? So, Understand this, that being a Christian, you don't have to be like this all the time. How are you? Fine, fine, hallelujah, everything's fine. It's not fine. If you're fine all the time, my premise is there's something wrong with you. How can you be fine all the time? So we don't have to fake it and act like we're fine all the time. But what we can do is say, boy, I am looking forward to that day when God transforms me and changes this body into a permanent incorruptible, I'll never have bad thoughts, selfish thoughts, dirty thoughts, mean thoughts, fearful thoughts, anxious thoughts. It's unending joy. The Bible says in God's presence is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, just a couple simple thoughts. In this condition, we can't enter heaven. Second alive, Dead or alive, you got to be transformed to a new condition. Next thought, this resurrection and transformation is a defeat of death. The Bible personifies death. And, and throughout history, we've done that, the grim reaper, right? Death is real, and it's scary, and it's ugly. In fact, the Bible calls it the last enemy, And Christ is going to defeat all of his enemies. But the last one that he will finally defeat decisively and permanently is death. And you can mark this down. Death is coming for you. And it might be sooner than you think. Psalm 139 says, in God's book, all your days were written when yet there were none of them. Baseball player once said to his buddy, wonder if there's going to be baseball in heaven. An angel showed up that night and said, I got good news and bad news. There's baseball in heaven. That's the good news. Bad news is you're pitching today. (laughs) We'll assume he was a Christian. So knowing that, what a cool thing to be able to stand in the face of death and say, you don't scare me anymore. In athletics, we get a little squeamish when people taunt. We don't kind of like pridefully taunting when we defeat someone. In fact, do you remember the penalty for a while that they used to call it in football? They didn't call it taunting, they called it fun-bunching, right? You know how everybody would run into the end zone and jump around? Excessive celebration, fun-bunching. While we don't like that, we do love vigilante movies. We do love seeing the bad guy getting a beat down at the end. And that's what Paul's going to tell us here. He says, listen, when that happens, look at verse 54. When this perishable puts on the imperishable, and this mortal puts on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. You know, it's a weird thing because when you put someone in the ground... It's kind of like the earth swallows them up, right? But one day God says, death is going to give up that which it swallowed and death is going to get swallowed up in victory. This is a quotation from Isaiah 25. Listen to this verse in Isaiah 25. God says, The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all the peoples on this mountain. And on the mountain, he will swallow up the covering over the people. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all their faces, for the Lord has spoken. And in that day, we will say, this is our God for whom we have waited, that he might save us. And then in the book of Hosea, it says, oh, death, where are your thorns? And so Paul takes this and he goes, guys, listen, we're going to get this glorious new body like Jesus. In a moment, powerfully, gloriously, permanently, hopefully. And he says, when that happens, we're going to taunt death. Then we'll come about this saying, oh, death, where is your sting? Now, the weird thing is the next verse doesn't fit. You really would think he's going to jump right to v- verse 57 and say, let's get a praise on. Let's get a shout for God now. But he throws one more thing in there. He goes, Death has two helpers. Death has two helpers. And God's not only gonna beat down death, He's gonna beat down its two helpers. And those two helpers are sin and the law. You see, the reason why we die is because of sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The soul that sins, it must die. And death in the Bible is far more than this. Look at me now, this is important. Death in the Bible is not just, hold me closer, Red, tell my wife I love her, and that's it. Death is an eternal separation from God in a place called the lake of fire, where day and night, the smoke of men's torment ascends forever and ever. That's the penalty for sin. God doesn't delight to to put people there. Justice demands that he puts people there. But Christ took death on the cross for us that we might escape that final penalty of death. But death came about as a result of sin. And then he says, And you know why sin abounded? Because of the law. The Bible says God gave us his law that sin might abound. Meaning this, God never gave us ten commandments and he said, hey, just do these ten and you'll get to heaven. So if you're here today and you think you're going to heaven because you do these ten, I got news for you. Look closely at these ten. These ten should be telling you you're not going to heaven. If you think you're going to get into heaven because you've kept these ten, you are deadly and deceived. You're lying to yourself that you've never lied, coveted, stolen, dishonored your parents, and loved the Lord your God with all your heart. The Ten Commandments only show us how sinful we are. And so Paul says, not only will Jesus defeat death, because the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. I read a quote, this word that's used of of sting. It was used of a nail on a a goat of a stick to hit an animal. And there was one guy who, who described the death of his friend. He said, the death of my friend is like an unceasing sting. Now we're not talking about a little sting from a from a cootie. We're talking about a sting from an adder, a sting from a poison viper, a throbbing, incredulous, ongoing, unceasing pain. And that's what death is like the sting of death. And anybody here who's lost a loved one can attest to the fact that even as a Christian, it still stings. And it stinks. And as my pastor friend said, everyone tells me, oh, don't worry, your wife is in a better place. He says, it's not where she is that's hurts, it's where she isn't. And so let's not make light of the pain and sting of death. But yet, the sting of death has been absorbed by Jesus Christ. When he hung on that cross, he said, let me have it. And he absorbed the full sting of death. So. What's the result? Paul says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, now remember, these Christians were being moved away from the gospel. I don't know if I believe that anymore. He winds around, he says, I'm not sure whether your faith is in vain or not. You need to do some soul searching and find out, do you really believe this? Now at the end, he says, therefore, be steadfast and movable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. So ask yourself this, is your faith in vain? I suspect that there's quite a few of you here that your faith is perhaps nothing more than just words. Blah, blah, blah. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. You want to know one of the reasons why I believe that? Because you're only here on Easter and Christmas. That doesn't sound like a real faith to me. That sounds like a head faith not a hard faith. So let me draw out a couple cool thoughts for us as Christians, and then we'll go. The first one is this. He says, therefore, my beloved, be steadfast and immovable. What does he mean by that? He means don't move away from the gospel. The gospel he told us at the beginning of the chapter is quite clear. Christ died for all of your sins. If you are a Christian, don't let anybody ever persuade you that that's not true. The devil is a liar. He'll tell you your sins are too great. He'll tell you you're too far gone. Your faith isn't real. The Bible's not true. You still have to go to purgatory. How can you know if you're going to heaven? Don't move away from this. Christ died for all of our sins. So you're forgiven. Don't live daily in guilt and condemnation and shame and fear. Christ died for our sins. Don't move away from that. And Christ rose again. So don't move away from that hope that maybe your life is painful and feels purposeless, but it's not. Jesus Christ rose again, and he's coming again. So he says, don't move away. Don't let your beliefs be shaken or staggered. Don't let anybody come along and say, we got a better form of Christianity. It's called progressive. There's no such thing as a better form of Christianity. Give me the same old gospel that Paul preached. And we don't need to enhance it. We don't need to make it clever. We just need to believe it with all our heart. In Colossians 1.23, Paul said this. He goes, don't be moved away from the hope of the gospel. Continue firm in your faith. The Bible calls this perseverance. And one of the marks of a person who perseveres is they take their faith seriously. Their faith is not a casual holiday, you know, activity. It's a daily lifestyle. The gospel is meaningful to them. They talk to their children about it. When someone dies, they relate it to the gospel. When they think about how they're going to live, they relate it to the gospel. The gospel is the central thing upon which we must never move away. And some of you have moved away. Maybe years ago you raised your hand and you said you accepted the Lord. Some of you may have been baptized. I just met with someone this week who flat out said, yeah, I've moved away, but I want to come back. And maybe this morning, God's speaking to you and saying, come back. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I won't won't cast them out. Come back. He's waiting freely and fully. Doesn't matter where you've been, it's where you're going. Come back this morning. Secondly, Paul says, and by the way, abound in the, can you leave that text up there? He says, abound in the work of the Lord. So the idea there is, hey. We should always be serving the Lord, obeying the Lord, persevering in the Lord, growing in the Lord. This isn't just, oh, I went on a missions trip. Every day, everything we do, we can do for the Lord. The Bible says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it for the Lord. Consistency, praying, reading your Bible, committing and saying, I'm gonna be part of a group And they're going to hold me accountable. I'm going to serve the Lord in the church. I'm going to step forward and I'm going to get baptized. I'm going to start witnessing to people. How would you describe your lifestyle for the Lord? Does he come across your screensaver? Or is he the reason you get up in the morning? And so Paul says, listen, since Jesus rose... Abound in the work of the Lord. And he says, because remember, your toil's not in vain. Nothing's going to be lost. Everything you do for Christ will last. You might sacrifice now. You might give up some things now. You might change your lifestyle. You might work less so you can do more work for the Lord. You might give away some things. You might change your career. You might change the way that you relate to your spouse. You might change the way you relate to your parents. But know this, that anything you do for Christ will be rewarded. That's why we have that great saying, only one life, it'll soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. Two more things. Let's by faith learn to rejoice and give thanks. Look at verse 57. But thanks... Be to God, who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. The mark of a Christian is just an ongoing lifestyle of gratitude. The Bible says, whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So let's not put Jesus back in his Easter basket and say, see you next year, but tomorrow when you get up, thank you God that Jesus died and rose again. And tomorrow, if, if you find out something sorrowful, thank you, God, that Jesus died and rose again. Matthew Henry said this, those who remain under the power of death, they don't have a heart to praise. But the triumph of Christ will tune the tongues of the saints. It is a victory that's obtained not by our power, but by God's power. And because he's worthy... Shouldn't this heighten our praise to God? How many springs of joy and thanksgivings to God are opened by the death and resurrection of Christ? May I remind you of that song again when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound? On that bright and cloudless morning when the dead in Christ shall rise and the glory of his resurrection share. And when all of life is over and I reach the other side and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. Amen. You believe that? It's coming. I'll be there. So, I want to urge you to make some serious changes, all of us. The Bible says, when Christ raises us from the dead, we shall be changed. But I'm going to ask you this, can you tell me a reason today why you wouldn't want to change for Christ, why you wouldn't want Christ to change you? The very process of the Christian life is change, being transformed into the image of Christ. Many of you have already trusted Christ, and I just want to encourage you to rest in that, cling to that. Let that carry you all the way to glory. As Charles Spurgeon said, lash yourself to the cross and float into the kingdom of God. But there's one last thing I want to say to those of you who may not yet get it. I want you to think deeply about this verse. Acts 17 says this. God has overlooked our ignorance, but now he commands everybody on this earth to repent and turn to God. Why? Why? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Let me explain that to you. God sent his son and he died for your sins to forgive you. And then he raised him from the dead and he he proved it. And he said, mark this down. There is a day coming when I will judge every single one of you. So you could just put it in your calendar. One of these days, you're going to stand before Jesus. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. And he's either going to say, welcome into my kingdom or depart from me into everlasting torment. And the only difference is God commands all men everywhere to repent and turn to God. Are you willing this morning, based on the resurrection of Jesus, to turn with all your heart and say, Lord, I don't know what I've been doing but I do believe you died to rose again. And because you died to rose again, I believe that I can be forgiven. And because you will forgive me freely, I want to be your follower. And because I want to be your follower, I'm going to get up from my pitiful party of, of excuses. And I'm going to start following you by your grace. Will you receive Jesus' gift today and come to him just as you are right there in your seat? This is the day in which God is calling you to Himself. And whether you're four or 40 or 80, you can come to Jesus right there. If you want to talk to somebody, there's plenty of us here that'll be happy to pray with you. If you're seeking or interested or you have questions. But let's close. Stand with me as we celebrate and just thank the Lord that He's coming again. Thank you, Father, so much for this Resurrection Sunday. Thank you that death has been defeated. Christ lives. Jesus, thank you so much that you endured so much out of your love for us. And your power that was raising you from the dead is at work in this church. It's at work in our hearts. Left to ourselves, Lord, we got nothing to offer. But may you pour out a fresh blessing of power on our church. May you change our lives. May this church be filled with love, filled with joy, filled with compassion, filled with hope. Lord, there are many hurting people here who have lost a loved one. May this passage be a great encouragement. There are some here who have lost their way. May the word of God bring them back today. There are some who have not come to Jesus. May they come to him today. As we go forth today, may we celebrate that he lives. And Lord, we look for you to come again, and we wait patiently Until we hear that trumpet, may we work busily for you. In Jesus' name, amen.